Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with New York Times bestselling author John Gilstrap, author of Crimson Phoenix, a fast-paced thriller of human survival during World War III and a nuclear apocalypse. Victoria Emerson, a single mother and member of the U.S. House of Representatives, refuses to abandon her sons and move into the military safety bunker with other members of Congress. With millions of Americans without food, power, or government aid, Victoria becomes the leader they need. New York Times bestselling author Jeffrey Deaver has this to say about the book. Crimson Phoenix ticks every box for big book thrillerdom. We're treated to political turmoil, military action, harrowing escape, relentless pursuit, and heart-wrenching scenes of families struggling against conflict, which Gilstrap pens like no other author. And to top it all off, he's created one of the most singular and compelling heroines to come along in years. John, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks. That sounds pretty good, right? You can keep reading it if you want. I'll just sit here. <laughs> yeah. And, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, just a little bit about you for our listeners here. You uh, won several awards. You're the recipient of an International Thriller Writers Award for Against All Enemies. You also received the ALA Alex Award for Nathan's Run, your two-time ITW Award finalist, New York Times bestseller. You're traditionally published author. And yet, and here's where I'm getting to my question, even as successful as you are, you have a YouTube channel, you frequently speak at conferences, you 
do events, clubs, youth programs. You go to military bases. You even show up on Charlotte Reader's podcast. So <laughs> let's let's bust the myth here. Is it true that even the most successful authors have to promote themselves? Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't couch it in terms of have to. I'm one of yeah. the few type A, um, really extrovert authors that that I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're recording this in the awful times of COVID, and and it's driving me crazy. You know, I like reaching out on events like this, and I I enjoy uh, talking with folks and teaching classes and, and what have you. Now that said, I think you know, it, I think the days of an author just sort of churning out a book and handing it off to Max Perkins, who then you know, <laughs> takes it off into those days are over. You know, we all, right. we all have to, um, it depends on what level of success you want. You know, I mean, there are, there are, there are people who are very comfortable selling hundreds of books or a, a thousand books. And I, I want to do more than that. I want to do mm. much more than that. So yeah. I think the more places you get out and the more ways that you're seen, um, it's just, it's like a name recognition thing maybe, mm-hmm. but it's also something I really enjoy to d- doing. And, um, I get good responses from folks when, when I do. So there's, there's something about going, being the keynote <clears throat> at a major conference and there's that dinner speech and everybody's kind of exhausted and you go and my, my intent is to inspire authors. You know, I was an overnight success. Nathan's Runner was a runaway hit, but I was an overnight success after a 38 year day. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I think people, people get very discouraged in this business and you know, it, it's, I don't, I don't like to see that. I think everybody should pursue their passions, what, whatever they would be singing, dancing, football, baseball, cutting down trees, you know, whatever it is, I think people should pursue their passions and I, I like encouraging them to do so. Yeah, I just I just had Steve Barry on the show, uh, and he talked about being an overnight success, but it took twelve years. Yeah, know? yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of what you're getting at there. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, listeners, we're gonna uh, have fun. We're gonna we're gonna go over and continue this topic on, on our Patreon channel when we're done talking about. Uh, well, since uh, John's built a, a YouTube channel. Uh, we're going to talk about platform building with an author YouTube channel. Should be great. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But, John, before we get into the book, a few interesting facts about you that I think make for a great foundation for a thriller writer. You're a former firefighter, a former EMT. Uh, you've got a master's degree in safety, University of Southern California, a bachelor's degree in history because you got to have the history you know, from William & Mary. And you're a nationally recognized weaponry and explosive safety expert as well as a National Shooting Sports Foundation member. Um, I think this question is really rhetorical, but, you know, how does that help you in your thriller writing? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's funny. I never thought that I was actually <laughs> training to be a thriller writer, but it right. kind of works out that way. Yeah. Now, there was a point, actually, my, my fire service career was actually all volunteer, but I ran with a station that ran 14,000 calls a year. So it was at one point the busiest fire station in, in Virginia. So I had, a, I had a chief that would laugh and he said, okay, so your day job is to blow stuff up. And then your evening job is to put it out. So, <laughs> um, but you know, yeah, obviously there's a, I think more than, you know, the explosive stuff and all of that, that's, that's technical knowledge that, that helps keep things real in the books. But in terms of having a deep impact on who I am actually, as well as what I write was the fire service stuff. You know, it's, it's, I've, I've um, delivered babies and I've zipped children into body bags. You know, it's, it's the, 
most days were far less dramatic than, than those extremes. But, you know, it's when I was 23 years old, I had the opportunity to walk in to the worst moments in people's lives. And they were looking to me for leadership. My job was to bring order to chaos. And, you know, you don't you do all the training in the world doesn't train you for any specific uh, kind of, of, of circumstance. So I think it, it helps to expand your imagination. Like, well, okay, we, we are 911. We got to figure this thing out. And then, uh, you know, kind of try your best. And if that doesn't work, then you try something else. And, and really, that's what thriller people, the characters in thrillers are forced to do. Mm. Right? Yeah, and, I, it's, and I enjoy reading thrillers, and I've had a number of thriller writers on the, on, on the show. But I, I was wondering, um, and maybe this is true for you too, because uh, I mentioned to you before the show, I'm a recovering trial lawyer for 35 years. I decided I wanted to write about conflict and control it more than experience it on a daily basis. And with your background and experience, I suppose maybe some of that's true. You didn't have any control over the kind of situations you walked into in those positions. But as a thriller writer, you can control what happens to the good guys, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the you know the they're the good guys for a reason. And plus, I write I write a series, so right. you know one of the great cheats is the 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 characters who pay my mortgage are probably going to make it to the end of the book, right? <laughs> so it's just it's just what do they have to go through to get there? And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's really great. Well, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, Crimson Phoenix uh, for a minute. I'm looking at uh, the the book cover and the book title. Of course, the title. It's a code name, right? It's a code name. Code name for what? Tell our listeners. Crimson Phoenix is the code that is that is given when the balloon is about to go up. This is this is a, a no kidding uh, nuclear weapons authorized. You know, it's it's like DEFCON one, but mm. at the congressional level, it's it's the code word to pack your stuff and uh, and get to the bunker. Mm. That's interesting. And the subtitle. A Victoria Emerson thriller, which is going to be the first in this series. But let's talk about Victoria Emerson for a minute. I was intrigued with this character. Um, let's let's talk about her. Uh, what makes her tick a little bit? Uh, I'm trying to imagine in a modern world what I would think of this person if she were a congressman today. You know, she's a prepper. She's training her kids to prep for the apocalypse uh, and, and weapons training and that kind of thing. We might call them, you know, evangelical Second Amendment types or something today. But uh, in the context of this book, you're glad to have her on your side, right? You're glad she prepped. But talk to us about how how she came to you and a little bit about her because she's a fun character. Well, in the book, the evacuation center is called the Annex. And it's it's in the basement of a place called the Hilltop Resort in an unnamed place in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the, the real U.S. government relocation center that was located in the Greenbrier, uh, which is a resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And uh, it was, the Washington Post revealed the, the story in 1994 and then was like, well, okay. That doesn't work anymore. And now they, you know, once, now, you, once you know where we're going to hide the, the congressman, we can't really use that as a spot. Anymore. Exactly. Exactly. What was nice, what was really interesting about this place is it, and it's open for tours. And that's actually where the inspiration came from. Uh, my wife and I went to the Greenbrier. It's a very nice resort. And um, I took a tour of this place. And and the thing that that triggered everything was that each member of Congress, which is what, 435 uh, members of, overall, they can each bring one 
um, staff member, but no family. Mm. So I guess 400, whatever it is. The, but the, so you have people who are leaving, the balloon's going up, right? This is a, a really big deal. And so you're leaving your family to fry while you go and protect yourself in the bunker. And it's got all the best communication systems that, that you can get. It's got a supply of food. It's got all of this. But who's going to hear you? Right. Yeah. Well, it's fine. before we get back to Victoria Emerson a minute, I, I want to, I looked up on the website uh, of, of the Greenbrier of all the activities, you know, you can do at the Greenbrier. And of course, one of them is the bunker tour. And so I started scrolling around and got lost this morning <laughs> in the bunker tour to, looking at this, but, but it's, it's carved, you know, sort of out of the mountainside. It's a Cold War fallout shelter. It, it really has a military look to it. And so you're walking through this thing and you start your brain, your, your author brain starts working and, and you start maybe ask yourself, well, what if, you know, there was a character who went there who didn't want to leave her family behind, who didn't want to just be a congressman with her, her one support staff person. Is that how Victoria Emerson was born? Yeah, it was essentially the, I build a, um, I build all of my books. Like I imagine chefs do recipes, you know, well, this would taste interesting with a little more salt and, you know, let's see what cumin does. And, 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 um, so it started with that premise and then you start building the story and, and it, it grew very quickly. I'll be honest with you. I was struck. Um, it was a weekend trip that we took and the story came to me on the drive home. It's about a four hour drive and I pitched it, uh, and sold it the next day. Mm. as as a uh, as a beginning of a new series. So some some stories come to you very, very quickly, and I find that when that happens, uh, they're they're pretty engaging stories. Um, so it was, that's but that's that's the genesis of it. And then there's the, well, she can't exist on her own, right? So who's going to be in support of her? and what are their problems? And you know it's, it's just the the organics of of growing a story is layer upon layer upon layer. And because they're thrillers, m many of the choices are wrong initially. And then you have to figure out how to, not my choices, but their choices. And then they have to figure out how to make better of it. Well, we're going to uh, have an, a reading in, in a few minutes here. But before we do that, uh, and it'll come from the opening of the book where she has to make a, uh, an important decision. Um, I'm just curious, though. Uh, I know they've, I don't even know if they have a site. If they do, they're keeping it confidential because they don't want people to know where they're going to move, you know, Congress people. But uh is that a thing still today that they would take Congress to a certain location, put them underground with one staff member? Uh, is that? It's, it's, I don't want to get into the reality of things, but this, yeah. it, it is certainly true within the, the confines of the book. And one of the big things that changed when the Greenbrier was built, it was, it was authorized by the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm. So back then, nukes were delivered by bombers. And you had all kinds of not, not enough time, but you had right. enough you know time to to mobilize. Now we got subs parked off the coast, and the flight time of a anti ballistic or of a ballistic missile is eight minutes, hmm. and um, that's not a lot of time to prepare. So yeah. there's there the precautions today have to be different than the precautions they were a while ago. Hmm. John, let's talk a little bit about uh, before before the read here differences between some of your other award-winning work and, and what you're doing with this book? Because I think you said that uh, this is fundamentally different than anything you've ever written before. I, I saw you quoted in that way. You had Nathan's Run, uh, successful. That involved a 12-year-old who escaped from a juvenile detention center. And then you've got your Jonathan Grave uh, series, uh, 
against all enemies. He's a dealing with a fellow combat vet that's gone rogue, killing American agents and leaking sensitive intel. This one is different. Talk about the difference and what you're excited about that. Well, my other books have all, this is my 23rd, I think. Um, my other books are largely either chase me books or, or, or rescue them books. You know, how are you going right. to get away? Like the fugitive right. Nathan's run was essentially in, in many was compared to the fugitive, but with a 12 year old, which I think was a really facile thing, but okay. Um, yeah. reviewers have to say something and actually it did very well around the world. Um, so that's been sort of my, it's, it's very high adventure, high action, boom, 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 sort of not in the explosive sense, but in the sense of, of the plot beats. And this is the first book where um, it's it's about rebuilding something. Uh, and, and therein lies the uniqueness as as most um, dystopian books. I don't even know what to call this. Uh, I, would, I called it a um, post-apocalyptic, but you can't say that now because it was post-apocalyptic. It's got vampires and <laughs> zombies and stuff. So I don't have that. Right. Um, but when I was a kid, I'm a child of the Cold War. And when I was reading those things, it was all about sort of waiting for the end. And this is a book about rebuilding society and it's about leadership and it's about the, some of the natural elements of, of leadership, which is the key to Victoria's character. She doesn't, she's tired. She quits Congress. And uh, we're going to see that in, in the piece that I read here. She quits Congress. She's done. She's just wants to get to safety and keep her family together and move on. But she's one of those people who people turn to, you know, mm. she can't not lead. And uh, I have known people like that in, in my past. And so it was kind of, it's entirely different. It's still a thriller. It's still fast paced. It's still, you know, all of that kind of element. It's, it's, you know, I haven't shifted to writing romance or, or, uh, but it's just, to my eye, it's, it's a different focus of a story. And to my ear, it's a different voice. You know, it's it's my ongoing series, the Jonathan Grave series has a very, um, I'm going to say a very masculine kind of uh, mm-hmm. voice. And this is less that. Uh, yeah. it, was just, it was just fun. Now, in, the, in those books, the other series, of course, you're bringing those different uh, you know, dramas to a conclusion. Here, uh, there is a conclusion of sorts, but you can, you can sense that there's the continuation. I'm just curious, have you already thought about the arc for this uh, series and how many books it's going to be before there's a, a full rebuilding or resolution? I don't know how many books are going to be uh, because the story kind of plays out. I'm not much of an outliner, so I I kind of live the stories as as they go on. Um, The next book in the series is going to be called Blue Fire, and it's I have to deliver that on April fifteenth, so okay, right. I'm fairly we, far along. We better, we better, we better hurry up. Then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What am I doing here talking to you? Exactly. Um, so, but yeah, I, I kind of know where it's it's going to go. A lot depends on quite. I mean, this is a business. Um, how well it's received. There are a lot of moving parts in this story. There's mm-hmm. I, I track some of the governmental stuff. I track you know there there there's sort of a. a, a separated one of her boys is separated from her and, and he's got trying to find his his way back so a number of different ways that i can go uh and if 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 this book does well then i get to expand my canvas and and take more time with the story right so if if um it's so far the early reviews are very good i would that's say. great yeah, um, yeah so we'll see we'll see well, i don't i don't have like four books or whatever 
All right. Well, I got a couple of questions about that, but I'm going to hold them for, let's do our reading now. Um, we're, we're, we're close to the beginning of the book, but uh, let's set it up just a little bit so people know how we got to this point uh, in the book that kind of opens with a, a, a major from the army knocking on Victoria Emerson's door, informing her that she's got to grab her bags and go. And uh, they move forward. They, work toward this location, bring us to this location, set it up a little bit, and then you can just take it away with the reading. Well, when Victoria is picked up by uh, Major Joseph McRae and First Sergeant Paul Copley, that's that's her escort group, excuse me, when they show up, it's, you're coming with us. This isn't a request. You know, I will carry you or you can walk. You are coming with us. I've got my orders. And um, he informs her that the kids can't come. And she says, then then I'm then we're going to have a problem right here at the doorstep. And McCray realizes that that's not his problem. You know, his, his problem is to deliver her. Everything is else, else is up to the annex, which is run by a fellow named Scott Johnson, whom we're just meeting in, in this scene. And she has gone up with her kids to gain access. And of course they have, have been shut down. They say, we can't support this. And she has made an argument just coming into this that yes, you can, you know, you've got three meals for 1,100 people uh, every day for 60 days or maybe more. That's, you know, however many thousands of meals it is. If everybody just eats one meal a day, you can house everybody. And, and my kids don't have to. So anyway, so Johnson is, is a, uh, the guy who runs this is a, um, he's got his orders too. So we sort of pick up in the middle of, of that argument. Uh, Victoria's kids are Caleb and Luke. I think they come up in this. You're creating a scene, Congressman Emerson, Johnson said. No, sir, I'm doing no such thing. I am merely stating facts. Ma'am, I have my orders, and your orders are going to hurt people. Something broke in Johnson. He took a menacing step forward, prompting both McRae and First Sergeant Copley to close ranks in a kind of pincer movement. Victoria might be a bitch, but she was the kind of bitch McRae admired. Don't talk to me about hurting people, Johnson said. Those decisions are made by the high and mighty members of Congress and the occupant of the White House. I am strictly in the business of keeping those decision makers alive. Oh, this had the potential to go very ugly very quickly. Victoria seemed to grow taller. And that is my only point, Mr. Johnson, she said. We members of Congress honor ourselves by anointing ourselves as inherently more valuable than those whom we represent. I want no part of it. Please advise Speaker Glendale that I hereby resign from Congress, and please feel free to give my spot to someone else. Johnson looked stunned. I, um, Victoria turned to McRae. I'm terribly sorry for the inconvenience, Major. If you'll forgive me, I'll ask you to take us back home. Johnson said, you know, your decision affects Mr. Mulroney too, right? That's her chief of staff. The words blasted wind from her sails, but only for a few seconds. She said, when you speak to Oliver, tell him to go home and hug his family. She hugged her own a little closer. Let's go, boys. McRae didn't move. Mrs. Emerson, I don't think you understand exactly what is going on here. I cannot allow you to return to your home. My job is precisely not to allow that to happen. Victoria tried to puff up. Perhaps you didn't hear me. I just resigned from the United States Congress. Good for you, McRae said, but I did not resign from the United States Army. I have a duty to keep you safe, and the area where you used to live has a high likelihood of becoming ground zero. 
The buzz among the forming crowd was blossoming into something much bigger. As more people left their cars, it became clear that Victoria was not the only member who believed that they could take their families into the bunker. Vicki? It was Abby Sinclair, the wife of Burton Sinclair, Oklahoma's 5th District. Did I hear right? Families are not allowed inside? Abby didn't wait for an answer. Instead, she whirled on her husband. Is this why you didn't want me to come along, so that I could die alone while you're safely in a bunker? Burton Sinclair dipped his head and placed his hands on his wife's shoulder. Their combined age easily topped 150 years. Sweetheart, you're not going to die. Not of this. No one is. If we do our jobs properly, that's why I have to go inside. Mine is an important job. What am I supposed to do? Go home, he said. Then he cast a glance at his military escort, or as close to home as you can manage. He leaned to kiss her, and she spun her head away. I'll see you in a couple of days. When Burton Sinclair turned back toward the cordon, Johnson let him pass. Why let the awkwardness fester any more than it had? Can we go back to the car? Victoria asked McRae. She was already walking that way. We can discuss that better here. There's nothing to discuss, McRae said. Victoria touched his arm. Please, the boys don't need to see this. It's likely to get ugly. The boys don't need to see this. A panic was beginning to build, and panic was an emotion that could spin out of control with frightening speed. For Sergeant Copley, make a hole for us to get back to the vehicle, McRae said. Mom, are we going to be okay? Luke asked. He sounded close to tears. That was good. Could you hear my dog barking? I could. <laughs> what kind is it? He's he's a 14-year-old rescue, and, and he can't hear, but he can bark. I, I, that's, all, that's all he can do. That's how he knows he's there. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, lo- I love this passage because it, it illustrates the uh, the human component of, you know, maybe what started out as a good idea to try to preserve the government, but not enough space for family and some real decisions uh, to be made. And, of course, uh, Victoria Emerson makes her decision. She chooses family, not so much the uh, congressman from from Oklahoma, who, who was perfectly willing to go in and, and leave his wife at home. Uh, nice little touch there. But uh, I want to talk about this theme of survival because that you know percolates the, through the book here. Um, it, it, you've got survival on the outside, which is what's going to happen when Victoria and McCray and her kids set off on their sort of quest to, first of all, not come incinerate and try to find a location where that might happen. But you've also got survival in the bunker. That's another theme that uh, I can see perhaps coming out a little bit more in book two. Am I right about that? Yes. It's certainly going to be pursued, right? Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that. Talk about the conditions that exist in that bunker. Uh, One person might think, yeah, that's a safe place to be. But then, you know, I'm thinking about this time in COVID where we're all trapped inside, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not such a rosy environment thinking about, uh, particularly in this day and age when the people that are going to be living together hate each other's guts, right? Right. Well, I'll tell you, the the procedures within the annex that I describe here are not exactly because, but are very similar to the procedures that were used at the Greenbrier. And the first thing that happens on arrival is was that they, every member was stripped of everything. And then they went through two showers, decontamination showers, and then they were assigned military uniforms because that's what we have. We got a lot of military uniforms. Now, they were all sized to the, you know, the 
we know all the the stuff. We know what the members' allergies are, and you know all that. Um, but the people who run the bunker, uh, or the people who run the annex in in my book, uh, are independent contractors, and they don't report to the people they're protecting because there's full anticipation that folks are going to go nuts, or there's going to be fights, or there's going to be you know. So the the the, the contractors have um, arrest authority. There's a jail cell in there for people. The living conditions are clean, but they're bunks. I mean, it's rows of bunks. It's like a barracks. And this is not the lifestyle that these people are, are used to. So and it's got a fully staffed hospital. You know, it's got, you know, all that stuff, but it's underground and the doors can't open. And in, in the construct of, of uh, Crimson Phoenix, they can't open for 60 days. Once the door is closed, you get shot if you try to open the door because that's what the rules say. So, yeah, so there's kind of that closed room uh, sort of thing. Yeah, it's a fun. I enjoyed that part of the book, seeing the conflict develop on the inside. While, the, while you're dealing with more of the, the violence uh, on the outside, as, as you say, the, the weak to turn feral, you know, when they go to the outside. And of course, you know, she starts heading for land that's familiar, West Virginia, um, a little further out in the country. And is there any, do you have any connection to West Virginia or did you? Um, Actually, just... we're, we're in process of building our dream home there. Um, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked West Virginia. I grew up in Virginia. I still live in Virginia and spent a lot of time in West Virginia. It's just, it's a, it's a beautiful state and it's a very rugged, outdoorsy, underpopulated kind of place. There aren't a lot of targets for nuclear warheads there, mm, yeah. um, as opposed to, say, living in Montana, or <laughs> you know, where, where it's one great big target, right? Uh, um, well, that's interesting. Well, let's do this in the time we have left here, uh, a little bit about uh, your, your writing life. Um, you've written uh, a number of books. You've had your uh, trailers translated into 20 languages. Uh, I'm just curious, has your writing process changed over the course of writing these books um, from the time you wrote the first one to the time you wrote uh, this most recent book? Yes. I mean, the, I don't know about the writing process. To be honest with you, I don't, I don't think about that a lot mm. because I don't really understand how it works. Mm -hmm. For me, the, this sounds so writerly, but for me, I sit down and in a good moment, the reality of what I'm writing is far more real than the reality of the seat I'm sitting in. So it's a matter of going to that place and reporting what I see. That part hasn't changed. By the way, they call it psychosis if you don't get paid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I used to outline because I was told I had to outline. And I realized after three or four books that my outline never looked anything like the final product or vice versa. So I thought, well, that's kind of silly. So what I do now is, and some of this comes with experience and confidence. You know, I don't, I'm not the, I'm not the best storyteller in the world, but I'm confident that I can churn out a journeyman level book and, and I, I'm comfortable with my own voice. And so I don't overthink things. I think early in a career, any career for that matter, as a, as a lawyer, I'm sure that you, you thought way harder about the questions you were going to ask them the question than, than as you advanced in your career, just because you kind of get used to things. So mm -hmm. that's what has changed. But the actual process of, of 
making stuff up and stitching plots together. I don't think that has changed a lot. Do you divide your day between the writing part and the uh, sort of the business part of writing? I generally start with um, business in the morning, emails and, and that kind of stuff, and then write in the afternoons and sometimes into the evenings. You know, so much I went back to work uh, after uh, I'd already made the list and, and we had done, you know, the, the books were doing well. But I was in my 30s. Now I was in my 40s. And um son was going off to college and, you know, I just, I was bored with my imaginary friends. And so I probably wrote eight or nine of my books while I had a full-time job, which had me uh, traveling all over the world. So I was constantly on the road. I can write anywhere. Um, I can sit at a bar in a crowded room. In fact, most of my, many, most of my books have been written in a bar in a crowded well, room. Well, you're sitting, you're sitting in a bar right now. I'm looking behind you. Yeah. Well, yeah, but this one's I, different, but yeah. I'd like to order a drink by the way. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. So is there any advice you would give your younger writing self that uh, had your younger writing self known it? Uh, he might've gotten a, a, a quicker start. Yeah. Seek fewer opinions. I think that there are writers groups, the most disastrous, I won't get into the details, but the most disastrous writerly experience I had was when I was in college. I had a creative writing teacher who just, I, we didn't, I don't know, we didn't get along. We certainly wrote different genres. And I was trying to write commercial thrillers and as undergraduate school and everybody else was trying to write important books. And uh, at the end of this, he said, John, you have no talent. Yeah, which is uh, you know, by the way, let me just stop you. How many how many books has that creative writing instructor sold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. so let's take that let's take that for the advice that it was right. Right, but he had certainly sold many more than I had at that point. Yeah, at that time. Yeah. yeah. Um, he died before I made the list. Just saying. Uh, okay. um, but you know that was I let him get into my head and into my heart and. Uh, and it took a long time to, to get past that. So I think when people get into these writers groups, especially online forums, they're just it's ugly place. People are either they either they give really bad good advice, you know, really, you know, oh, this is great, you're doing doing great, and you read it, and it's really not. But it's so much easier to say that it's good than it's bad. And others will will give criticism to a strong voice because it doesn't meet what the inexperienced writer thinks the voice should be because that's what their creative writing teacher told them in, in class. So I think it's a matter of understanding that your art is yours. And I think it's true of singing and dancing and acting and, and, and writing and anything that is art or foot, you're playing the football field, you know, it's, or it's, um, you're, you're the star of your own future. And the more, conflict you invite into your life to criticize that, especially when you know it's really not ready for prime time. Uh, I, I think it's, it's sort of soul stealing and you get in your own head too much. Well, John, we're going to jump over in just a minute, listeners. We're going to jump over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. You can join us over there for as little as $5 a month and help support the podcast and get all the access to the over 50 uh, interviews we've done with Deeper Dives. And this Deeper Dive is going to be on platform building with an author YouTube channel. And uh, just as a teaser for that, John, maybe as we finish up here, is there, I know you've done a lot of, and we're going to talk about that on Patreon, a lot of different topics on there. Um, is there one that uh, 
you know, you're more attached to than others of all the topics you've done that uh, just keeps coming up over and over again? No, I think <clears throat> I'm very proud of, of what I put on the channel. I think yeah. um, some of the esoteric stuff, you know, doesn't get as many views as some of the others. Like, you know, how, how does a writer get paid or how does an author get paid has had, right. you know, tons of hits or, you know, about yeah. movie deals. That has a tons of hits. But, yeah. but some everybody, of the... Everybody's shooting for the stars. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, things like, can you afford to quit your day job? I address that. Um, interacting with your editor and agent. Do you need an agent? Uh, short answer, yes. Uh, for for traditional publishing. Uh, traditional versus, what are the advantages and disadvantages of traditional versus independent publishing? I talk about that. So these are all fairly short. Um, I think the longest one is like 12 minutes. And the shortest one is in four well, it's interesting. I was looking at that. We're going to talk about that on Patreon as the right range and range of it. I did look though, and, and your independent publishing versus traditional is about 19 minutes. So you did spend a lot of time on that topic. So uh, it's, it's an important topic that a lot of people listening here might want to think about too. All right. So listeners, you can find uh, Crimson Phoenix, uh, wherever books are sold. John Gilstrap, he's uh he's been around the corner and back again. Uh, I've got in the show notes at charlotterspodcast.com. You can find links to his website, links to his YouTube channel. I would check that out. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of good information there. Uh, John, you got the final word here. What do you want to say about this book? I just, it's very special to me. It, it's, it's like writing in a new voice. Not that I didn't like the old one, but it's, it's a very exciting new take on an old story. This is about, it's not about disaster. It's about hope. Mm, that's great. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of uh, Charlotte Reader's podcast. Great to be here. Been a lot of fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.